Uh, I'm going to be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 7, so if you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 672. That's page 672. A good name is better than a fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing, and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider God has made one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one man wise, oh sorry, wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things, while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only I have found. God made man upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Um. 
Hopefully you still have your Bibles open there. We're, we're going to read uh, chapter 8 as well. I've given myself the shorter chapter um, to read. That's page 674 um, of the Pew Bibles, if, you, if you've closed it and want to, to look it up again there. Again, this is, this is the Word of God. Who is like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command. I say because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm. And the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter. Though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? No man has power over the wind to contain it. So no one has power over the day of his death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then too I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve, and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of his life. God has given him all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. Amen. Um, Just before we come to, to think about these, these chapters of, of Ecclesiastes. Let's just pray. Um, Father, we have just been reading your word. Uh, and now as we come to, to ponder it, to think about it, to hear what you will say through it. Lord, I pray that you are with me. May the words I speak be your words. Lord, be uh, in all that I, all that I say And Lord, be in our hearts. Help us to receive your word today. 
Help it to, to build it up, to build us up, to change us, to, to renew us, challenge us, and to equip us to better live for and serve you. Amen. Um, <clears throat> I wonder, have you ever played Would You Rather? The game where, where someone makes up two ridiculous options and you have to try and reason out which one you think is better. Uh, the classic one that you might hear around a campfire or, or at a, a youth event is, what, what would you rather do? Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? Which is better? It's a shame discipleship groups aren't meeting uh, over the summer. At that, there's your opening discussion. Well, as we come to chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, the teacher opens up with some choices. And he suggests to us which of the two options is the better one. And just like our ducks and our horses, some of the ones that he picks, they also seem pretty ridiculous. To figure out what's going on, we need to remember where we've been so far. In chapters 1 to 6, the teacher is speaking to God's people. He's seeing the direction that they're going. They're abandoning God. They're building their lives instead on the things of this world, the things under the sun. And the teacher, he's been there before. He's tried it all. He's pursued worldliness to its extremes. And all he has found is smoke. Meaninglessness, as the NIV puts it. In five, chapter 5, verse 17, he says, There is nothing there except darkness, frustration, sickness, and anger. He's been showing all of us who are tempted to look elsewhere for our joy and satisfaction that it, that it simply cannot be found by putting your hope in any of the fallen temporary things this world has to offer. Things that were, were never designed to be the main thing of our lives. Never designed to fill that place of longing that can only be fulfilled by being in relationship with God. And now that he has spent some time breaking these things down, the things that he has chased after and found to be empty, he begins in the rest of the book to, to build a case for something better. The teacher who, who may well have been Solomon, or at least someone who's using the, the life of Solomon to bring us this, this cautionary tale, he begins this section by showing us the place of wisdom. Something that, that everybody knew was key to the character and the life of Solomon. But in these opening verses of chapter 7, we see that it's, it's not earthly wisdom that the teacher is focusing on, but the wisdom of God. We see this in these strange, better statements that he makes. He has seven of them in the, the opening verses of chapter 7, but they're really focused around four main areas. Attractive character is better than an attractive smell, 7 verse 1. The day you die is better than the day you were born, also 7 verse 1 and 2. Mourning is better than laughter, 
7, 3 to 7. And the end of something is better than the beginning. 7, 8 to 12. Now, sadly, he sheds no light on our, uh, our ducks or our horses. But he still makes some strange statements. Some that don't seem to make an awful lot of sense. Certainly in terms of the world. But hopefully as we unpack each of them, and we're going to use the rest of chapter 7 and 8 to help us to do that, you'll see that these better statements guide us towards living wisely and enjoying our lives because they help us to see God at work in us and in the world. So we'll start with the the easy one, or at least the easier to understand one. A good name or an attractive character is better than fine perfume. Perfumes or or aftershaves can be lovely. It's why we wear them. But it's external. It's fleeting. They go stale. They are actually vapor. But a good character, a good character can be so much more attractive. And what does the teacher mean when he talks about a good name or a good character? He means it in the same way that God meant it when he first created the earth. He means perfect. Now the teacher knows that we can't be perfect. In verse 20 he says, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who deserves, no one who does what is right and never sins. The people of good character that he's calling us to be are not people who are perfect, because only one of those has ever existed. They're people who are godly. People who are pursuing God and are living out the, that good, godly character in their lives. And the wise king knows people like that are not easy to come by. In verses 26, uh, into chapter 8, verse 1, the teacher talks about his pursuit of upright or godly people. And he doesn't find too many of them. In fact, only one man out of a thousand and no women. Now, before you accuse the teacher of being sexist and refuse to listen to anything else that he has to say over this 0.1% win for the men, let me try and add a wee bit of context to this. Remember, this is the reflections of Solomon, or a Solomon-like character, the king When he went searching for these upright men, where did he go? He looked among his court, his advisors, his priests, the prophets. He looked at the very best that Israel had to offer. And he found only one who was even attempting to live for God. This could be a reference to the prophet Nathan, who had dealings with Solomon and his father David. And when he looked at the women that he had surrounded himself with, who's he looking at? The women of his court, his wives and his mistresses. Many who were were from foreign nations and worshipped other gods. Who had got into his court to try and gain power and influence. Among these 700 wives and 300 concubines, who the Bible tells us in, in 1 Kings 11, led Solomon astray into following after their gods, we're unlikely to find many Ruths or Esthers. It seems not one amongst them was upright. 
You see, the teacher here is not talking negatively about women, but about his own sinful lusts and fallenness. When he should have had that same good character that he describes in verse 1. I wonder if the teacher of Ecclesiastes was here this morning. Wonder how his maths would stack up. Wonder how many upright people the teacher would find amongst us. Would he find amongst the people of God here those who, who put on a good show? Who maybe smell good on the outside? Who say the right things? Come week by week? Are involved in everything? But inside, where it matters, they're to coin a, a Northern Ireland expression, they're minging. People who have zero regard for God in their daily lives. They hand themselves over to their, their lust, their anger, their selfishness, their desire to get to the top, to be liked, to be wealthy, to be wanted. These are the people that the teacher finds amongst God's people there. I wonder where he find them here. If that's you, it doesn't have to be. Maybe this is your first time here. Or maybe you've been coming for years. Maybe you've been engaged in religion, but it makes almost no difference to your life or your heart. You have no real relationship with God. It doesn't have to be that way. Jesus has made the way for you to be made right with God. To stop living this, this meaningless life, this life of vapor that the teacher describes. The life that's, that's all about you and yet somehow keeps leaving you worse off. Jesus offers you real life. Abundant life. Life that you can enjoy both here and into eternity. Life forever with him in perfection. Trade in that old stale perfume that so quickly loses its fragrance and put your trust in Christ, the one who lived for you, the one who died for you, the one who rose for you so that you could have real life. And hopefully that's not all the teacher would find here, but he would find some people who are living out that character of God in their lives. As he says in, in the start of chapter 8, whose faces are bright with the hope of Christ, who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, whose whole lives are like perfume, their words and their deeds giving off an aroma of Christ, attracting others to him. That is the person of good character. Is that you? Is that always me? No. I wonder how attractive, I wonder how attracting we are to this world around us. Do you want to live well? Do you want to live wisely? Then grow in the character of God. Be in his life-changing, heart-changing word. 
Be in conversation with him at all times. Remind yourself constantly of who he is and all that he has done for you. And pray. Pray that his Holy Spirit living within you would shape you more and more into the new creation that you have been made in Christ. The teacher doesn't end there. In these chapters, he also gives a bit of an insight into the results of growing in this godly character. If you look at at chapter 7, verses 19 to 22, it tells us that that godly character makes us wise and helps us to, to hold less tightly to the problems and the issues of this fallen world. The example it gives here is slander and gossip. It helps us to be wise in dealing with the problems of this world, but it also helps us to be wise in causing less of the problems in this world. Why? Because it makes us perfect? Verse 20 says no. It's because we're going to be more secure in who God made us to be, not our own selfish desires or what other people think about us. Are you someone of good name? Someone striving for godly character? Are you someone covered in perfume? Trying to mask the, the, the rotten way that you've been living your life. First John 1 tells us that Jesus' blood can make us clean and pure again. If we confess our sin and follow him, he can wash away the stink and bring us life. So there we go. Chapter 7, verse 1a, done. Now chapter 7, verse 1b. This sermon goes on till Thursday, by the way, so I hope you're happy. No, it really doesn't. But the next next better statement that we find in verse 1 is worth having a quick look at. The day you die is better than the day you're born. What a completely different philosophy to that of the world which says from the moment you're born, the clock is ticking. Ticking until eventually you disappear back into a meaningless nothingness. God's people can think differently about this. The moment of death is better than the moment of birth for two reasons. Firstly, it's the culmination of a life lived. At birth, all there is is potential. What could be And that's brilliant. But at death, we have what was. A life lived. For many, when they look back on their life, they're filled with sorrow, regret, a life maybe wasted, a life underused, a life not enjoyed. For the Christian, the the hope is that as we face death, we can look back on the life God has given us and rejoice. Rejoice at all that he has done for us and through us. That we will have enjoyed our lives with their joys and their sorrows because God was with us through it all. That we, like like Paul in in 2 Timothy 4, 7, might be able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Life is for the living. 
And it is at the end of life that we get to see if that character of godliness has really shaped our lives. The second reason that the day of death is is better is because of what Christ's death and resurrection achieved. We know that, that death isn't the end. In fact, it's only the beginning of our real life where we will spend eternity more alive and fulfilled than we have ever been in this life. In the the final Narnia book, uh, The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis, he puts it like this. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. For the follower of Jesus, the point of death may be difficult, may be painful, but it shouldn't be a time of sorrow. It should be a time of joy. Joy as we look back and see how God has shaped and used our lives. And we look forward and experience all that he has promised to us. So what's the result of all of this for us? Who, us who, who God willing have no intention of facing death quite yet. Well, the teacher delves into that a bit as well. If you look at chapter eight, verses two to, to 10, it talks about finding ourselves under the, the rule of, of kings, maybe those who will oppress us, will make life difficult and misery. But we're called to live well and wisely in the world we find ourselves, even when it's a struggle. Remembering that that this world is, is not our home, that we're just pilgrims passing through, going on to somewhere better, and called to tell and show others the way as we go. So then we come to the third better. Mourning is better than laughing. Does this not just fly in the face of what we've just said? Of this whole series, in fact? Is this series not meant to be about enjoying life? How's weeping better than laughing? Well, what he's saying here isn't actually about weeping or laughing. In chapter three, the teacher has already said there's a time and a place for both of those things. This is about our attitude towards life. A party, a feast, is a place for laughter, for exuberance, for living in the moment. But a funeral, a funeral is a place where we are confronted with the realities of this fallen existence. That the party someday ends. And we need to consider our life and the lives of those around us. We live in a a culture that runs away from the idea of death. We, We spend masses of money developing all kinds of ways to prolong life as long as possible. We don't even like to talk about death. We talk about passing away, moving on, and a growing number of us realizing that death cannot be avoided forever seek to instead control death to go out on our own terms. 
The fools that the teacher is talking about are those who are determined to ignore the truth of the world around them. To eat, drink, and be merry, but to never consider that tomorrow they may die. He's saying it's better to develop the thoughtful wisdom that a funeral can bring than to constantly distract ourselves from the truth of this fallen, broken world. Uh, If I was making this point at at an SU camp or mission, this would be the time I would appeal to the young people about not putting off becoming a Christian. I don't know how relevant that is here. Maybe there is somebody amongst us, somebody who's been coming for a while, maybe years, and has heard all this stuff about life in Christ, hope for the future, and you know you've got to do something about it. But you're just not ready to give up the smoke. It maybe hasn't caused you too much hurt or pain. You maybe think you're finding life and enjoyment in the things of this world. After all, everybody else seems to. And you're maybe just not ready to, to, to let go of it yet. I often get to hear people's testimonies, the stories of how God brought them to faith. And one line I think I've heard in, in almost every story of anybody who became a Christian um, in their late teens or, or older is this, I just wish I'd done it sooner. The one regret of people who come to genuine faith is that they missed out on it for so many years before. Be wise. Let's be be thoughtful about our lives, the lives of our friends and our families. Let's consider the, the fallen world we are currently a part of the world that we will one day leave and stand before a throne. And let's act on the promises that God has made us, both for our own lives and for the lives of those that we love. And this wisdom that we're talking about, if you look at at chapter 7, verses 15 to 18, we have a reminder that this this better wisdom here is, is not earthly wisdom, but it's godly wisdom. Being wise in the world leads to self-righteousness, not God-righteousness. Like those Pharisees who who looked religious but whose hearts were far from God. And worldly foolishness, it leads to self-destruction. Both of them, self-righteousness and self-destruction, they're both about us. And both lead away from God. Seeking more wisdom, seeking to become wise is not the answer. Seeking more of God in our lives, that's what makes us truly wise to the truth of this world. And then finally, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. I wonder, are you prone to a wee touch of nostalgia? The good old days? when everything was better and safer and cleaner. wonder you like that about your faith. I wish I had the faith that I had when I was young or the prayer life I used to have or the, the devotional life I used to have. 
I wish this church still did this or still did that. It was much better then. Or I remember when, when this was a Christian country. Things were better back then. Were they? Or has the rosy glow of history and memory over time diminished everything that was difficult and painful and bad and instead magnified everything that was good to become much better and much greater than it probably ever was? Do you ever visit somewhere that you went to as a child or watch a movie that you loved when you were young and you go and you see it again and you think, well, it's not really as good as I remember it. So what's the point? Well, what's nostalgia really all about? It's about longing. What do we long for? As Christians, the thing we should be longing for is not the past and the way it was, but the future. The return of Christ and the renewal of all things broken by our sinfulness and rebellion. See, the problem with nostalgia in the Christian life is this. The longing is in the wrong direction. We focus on a past that's gone and probably because of the, the fickleness of memory never quite was. We focus on what God did in the past and we cling to it to the point where we can very easily miss or even get in the way of what God is doing now. We see this multiple times in the Bible. One notable example is, is when Moses is leading the people to the promised land. God is, is physically guiding them, the pillar, of, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. He's just dramatically rescued them from hundreds of years of slavery and oppression and is now bringing them to be his people in their, land, their own land. And the people, sick of walking, sick of traveling, they completely miss all of this incredible stuff that God is doing. And they want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to slavery. Because looking back on it, it wasn't really all that bad. God is building his kingdom here, now. His promised return to make everything right again has never been closer. Don't get so caught up in looking back that you miss, or even worse, get in the way of what God is doing now. In your life, in this church, in this community, in this world. God's not finished. God's not diminished. So let's keep our eyes forwards and look for ways to serve him in the world that is, not the world that was. So what's better? What's better than chasing after the wind? What's better than throwing yourself after the smoke and the vapor of the things of this world. It's better to live your life with godly character. It's better to die your death in godly hope. It's better to have thought through the truths of this world rather than distract yourself from its realities. And it's better to long for what God is doing and has promised to do 
rather than long for the the rosy glow of a past misremembered. Live for God. Die in God. Focus yourself on the things of God and long for God's work in the here and now. That's the better way. The way of wisdom. Because as as chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 remind us, no matter what, no matter how it looks, God is in control. And his promises are sure. Let's pray.